I want to uh, begin by giving you guys a little test. I know we all like tests, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That, that prayer is a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And oftentimes we refer to that as the Lord's Prayer. In fact, Luke uh, records in Luke chapter 11 the, where the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them that prayer. And so we've called it the Lord's Prayer, and yet it might be better termed the Apostles' Prayer or the Model Prayer. And I bring that up today because we're not going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the real Lord's Prayer. And we find that in John chapter 17. You see, there's only a few times where we get to really see Jesus and hear and read his prayers John, John chapter 17 is one of those prayers, and this is a prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. This is a little bit different than the prayer that he prayed on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane when, as Luke records, he sweated drops of blood. That was a prayer of agony, and this is what we might call the real Lord's Prayer. So in here, uh, in John 17, some people have called this the high priestly prayer. Because they see this as Jesus praying it over his people. But also we have seen it, some people have called it the prayer of consecration because he's setting himself apart and he's praying that God would set apart others. So in this prayer, Jesus prays for himself as he prepares to go to the cross. He also prays for his disciples and then concludes his prayer by praying for all believers. And realistically, he's praying for us. He's praying for you and me. So if you have your copy of God's word and would like to open to John 17, we will have some scripture on, this, on the screens, but I do want to encourage you to have your copy there because there may be places where you'll want to make notes or want to be able to see it. I, and for me, I just, I find that being able to see it on paper is a little better than seeing it digitally, even though I use digital stuff when I'm preparing each week and I have a, all my sermon notes on a little digital thing. It's a little hard to scribble when you're using digital stuff. But so let's begin. Jesus, in his prayer, he begins by praying for himself. And we see this in the first eight verses. And let me just read the first five for us. John chapter 17, verses one to five says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
I see, time and again, Jesus has said that his time has not yet come. In fact, we've seen that multiple times in the Gospel of John. When Jesus was at the wedding at Cana, they ran out of wine, and Mary goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Can you help them out? And he says, Mom, actually, he says, Ma'am, woman, my time has not yet come. And again, later on, he says, my time has not yet come. And yet it's this week in Passion Week, he finally says, my time has come. The hour has come. Now is the time for the culmination of his mission. You see, at Jesus' heart, he wants to glorify God and knows that God is glorified best when the Son is glorified. There's this mutual glorification going on. But how would all of this happen? And I think in reading through this and reading through the entire gospel, we get to see that this glorification, this mutual glorification would happen through the cross, through the death, burial, resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of Jesus Christ. It would happen as the wrath of God is poured out at the same time that the mercy of God is given. All of this All of this hinges on the cross. You see, Jesus bore our wrath. Scripture tells us that the wages or the reward of sin is death. We see that in Romans 3.23. And Jesus took our place. He paid that debt for us by fully dying and then conquered by coming back to life. In fact, 1 Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then quoting from Isaiah, he says, by his wounds you have been healed. You see, in his mercy, God exchanged Jesus' life for ours. In his justice, he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. But also notice that in his prayer, Jesus notes that God gave him authority over all flesh. God gave him the authority to give eternal life. And then he goes on to acknowledge that eternal life, he defines eternal life as knowledge of the one true God and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, we get to know the one true God through the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the propitiation or the replacement for our sin. And as we come to faith in Jesus, ultimately, he would be glorified because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So as billions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, as billions come to know him, it is only through him. So therefore, Jesus is glorified and God is glorified in that as well. And yet, Jesus doesn't make this request out of thin air. The basis for Jesus' request here and the request that he has to follow are are based on the fact that he has fulfilled the mission that God gave him to do. We've seen this. We've read through the Gospel of John this year. All the things that Jesus did, all the ways that he demonstrated perfect obedience to God. And yet, look in verses 6 to 8 in John chapter 17. He kind of gives us a little bit of a summary. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, 
and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus came and and fulfilled what he was sent to do in living out what the perfect life would be. And when we get to look at Jesus, when we understand what he is teaching, we get to see the true picture of God. He is the embodiment of God. He is the word made flesh, or as, as uh, Tim Mackey or even Jordan Zorner might say, he is the Eden. He is the Eden come to earth where God and humanity get to fellowship together in perfect communion. In fact, John communicated that to us in the very first chapter, in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I need to ask you, do you want to be free from the judgment of your sin? Do you want to have the eternal life that Jesus Christ has offered, has made a way for you to have? Do you want to live the life that God has designed for you, then I want to encourage you, repent of your sin, turn and trust in Jesus Christ in his finished work. What he did on the cross wasn't just an example of self-sacrifice. He truly sacrificed. He took the debt that you and I owe. Will you trust in him by faith? He embodied the life that God intended for all of us, the life that we have corrupted in our fallen ways. Come to Jesus. Have life. So Jesus, in addition to praying for himself, he says, you know, God, I I want the glory that I had before. I fulfilled the mission that you called me to. But then he also prays for his disciples We see this in verses 9 through 19. He knows that the next period of time will be very challenging. His crucifixion will be disheartening for them. Imagine being his disciple. Even though time and again Jesus has said the Son of Man must die and be brought back to life, and yet the day that Jesus is on the cross, when when he breathes his last breath, it will be a day of sorrow for his disciples. And then three days later, when he comes back from the grave, it'll be a day of increasing joy and exhilaration as they get to be with him. And then a month later, when he ascends, it'll be a whole new time of challenge for his disciples. And so I think Jesus is looking ahead and he said he knows that the coming weeks and months and years and decades will be challenging for his followers and anticipating all of that, he prays two significant things for his disciples. First of all, he prays for their security, which would result in their unity. He prays for their security resulting in unity. This is is a little bit of a longer section, but look at verses 9 through 16. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. Not, not one of them was lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may, uh, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the wor- world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So his first request for them is that they would be be kept secure so that it would result in unity. You see, the disciples are going to carry on the mission that Jesus started, and they will act as heralds proclaiming the good news to the world. And even though their message will be good, good news, the world will not receive it. And so Jesus prays that God will keep them. God will keep them. But what does that mean? Let's think about this briefly from, from an earthly perspective. If you've ever traveled abroad, you know that you have one of these little, if you're an American, you have one of those little blue things, right, that you carry with you. It's called a Passport, right. And so when you go to another country, you go in many ways representing the nation from which you came. If you're from another country, yours is probably a different color. But when you came to the United States, you came in many ways representing your home nation. Have you ever noticed that when there are tragic events that happen in different places around the world, whether it's a war or a conflict or an act of terrorism or even uh, some big disaster, a natural disaster, the news reports here always are, are quick to account for how many Americans were involved. So many thousands of people were injured or lost their lives, and so many Americans were also involved in this. And it's because part of what happens in many ways, when we travel, the nation then is aware that we're over there. And if need be, they can step in and act on our behalf to try to help out. They, they sort of keep us in the name of our home nation, right? And it's going to work more that way if you're serving in the armed forces or if you're an ambassador or serving in the State Department. They were definitely going to keep you in their name because now you're truly representing the nation. But I think in much the same way, on a bigger scale, Jesus requests here that as the disciples encounter persecution and trials, that they will be kept secure, that the enemy will not snatch them away, that God will encompass them, or as some like to pray, that God will be a hedge around them. It's as though they are foreigners in a foreign land proclaiming the goodness of a foreign king, inviting others to a relationship with him. And while Jesus' prayer is specifically for the disciples, Don Carson suggests an extension to this for all believers. Look at what he says there. He says, the Christian's task then is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth by the help of the paraclete or the Holy Spirit and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, finally protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. 
So I want you just to consider that as you witness, as you demonstrate the goodness of God at work or in your neighborhood or with your family, as you proclaim the good news to those who are around you, you do so as a foreigner, but with the protection of God himself. There is nothing that can happen to you here that will snatch you out of God's hand. He has more authority and power than any president or prime minister or monarch because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. But notice that Jesus' request is not simply for the disciples' security. He doesn't want them just to have this safe, holy huddle. He doesn't want, just want them to be together. He's praying that they would be secure, that their security would result in their unity. Look at verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, when troubles come, our natural tendency is to withdraw, to protect ourselves, right? If there's a conflict, we want to pull back unless we're going to, you know, be all in, right? We're going to pull back and then we're going to start pointing fingers, figuring out who we can blame to, that caused it. It wasn't me, right? Um, and yet Jesus' request here contrasts he contrasts that as he prays that they would be one, that they would be unified, that they would have each other's backs. You see, the disciples did not always agree on things, and they, they did seem to press through, and they remained unified, at least as far as we can tell. When you read that, when you look, in fact, look in the book of Acts, you can see different places where conflict comes out and they they begin to have this unity with one another. And so Jesus, as he prays for them, he prays for their security that would result in unity. But secondly, he prays for their sanctification. We see this in verses 17 to 19. He prays for their sanctification. He says, sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word sanctify or consecrate very often in my everyday conversations. It just doesn't happen very much outside of the church, and yet it's replete in these few verses. What does that mean? There's a, a, one of the resources I looked at says that sanctification is the ongoing super, supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin and to conform them into the image of his son, holy, Christ-like, and empowered to do good works. There's a lot in that. Let me read that one more time. Hear what all that sanctification entails. Sanctification is the ongoing supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin and to conform them to the image of his son, holy, Christ-like, and empowered to do good works. 
Sanctification isn't the thing that saves us. We're already saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is that process where God takes these, as it said there, justified sinners and makes them more holy, makes them more Christ-like. Don Carson explains it a little bit further. He says, in practical terms, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him, without learning to live in in conformity with the word as he has graciously given. Let me just kind of help us grasp this from a, a, again, from an earthly standpoint. If you think about it, those who go into the military, they often go to a season, several weeks of basic training. Jim, do you remember that from years ago? So, so prior to Jim being able to go into active duty, he had to learn the things that he needed to do to be a, a good soldier. He had to learn how to dress right, and they go through all that. He had to learn how to make his bed right. He had to learn how to march correctly. At least that's what my son had to do. They had to learn to do all these things, and then they got specific information about the specific job they were going to do. So as they would grow in this knowledge, they would then be prepared to put that in action when they were called upon to do that. So then when either Jim or others who got deployed overseas or or got to, to, to go into different areas of conflict or got to go into different areas of service, they had now this knowledge that would be applied. They were sanctified. They were set apart for that work. And I think in much the same way, that's how it is for us. As we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we get his way of thinking in our minds, as we begin to live that out, then when conflict comes, when opportunities come, when various things in front of us are there, we've now gained the knowledge so that we can apply it. We've purged the sin from us that, we, that, that is so rampant. And so the sanctification that Jesus prays for stems from the knowledge that they will have gained through him, which then gets lived out in their lives. But I love this. Jesus doesn't just stop with his disciples. He expects that their mission to go into all the world and make disciples will be successful, which means that there will be a whole group of people who will believe in Jesus But their only encounter with Jesus is through the testimony of the disciples, whether that's verbally or like many of us have done in the written word. If you think about this, the the New Testament, the testament that we have here, the testament that we're studying is the written word, the written testimony of apostles, of these first disciples. And so as a result, Jesus finally prays for us. In essence, he's praying for all believers that are after that first generation of Christians. And as he did with the disciples, he has two specific and significant requests for us. First of all, he prays for our unity with one another, which kind of makes you think if the disciple, if Jesus said, I want you to keep them secure, keep them safe so that they may be one or resulting in their unity. And then he prays for our unity. It kind of implies that the same threat that the disciples experience, it's the very same threat that we experience. Look at verses 20 to 23. He says, I do not ask for these also, 
but also, I, I, I'm sorry, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Here it is, the night before Jesus is going to the cross, the night, the very night he was going to be betrayed, the very night that he was going to be put on this kangaroo court trial, he's praying for you and me. He's praying this for us. And yet notice that the very same challenge that the disciples faced is the challenge that we face. The enemy wants to divide us. The enemy wants to pull us apart. So often we want to be right and then willingly and even voraciously argue our side of things. Whether it's a theological point, whether it's a preference point, we, want, we have our opinions and we're going to stick to it, right? We're going to stay there until someone else buckles. And in many ways, this has been a challenge from the earliest days of the church. In fact, since the Reformation, it's been an especially tricky challenge for Protestant churches. You see, if we don't like something, if we don't like it the way it is, we'll just split, start something new. Rather than pressing through and, and, and renewing, re, rather than being one. And notice that Jesus said that his prayer is that we would be one so that the world would know that Jesus has sent us, that God has, is, has love for them. And it's our oneness that is a testimony to the world. Again, Don Carson says this unity is meant to be observable. It's not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. So what does this mean for us? How do we respond to the unity that Jesus requests I think it means that we press through conflicts. We don't always have to have the same opinion about things, and we can certainly disagree on nuances here and there. But I think it means not fading into the background when conflict arises. I think it means not letting someone else just drift off. It means having someone's back. It means pursuing one another for the good of the kingdom, for the good of the church. In fact, let me encourage you this afternoon. On your notes, write down Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Because in Acts 15, you have this beautiful example of what unity in the midst of conflict looks like. 
as, as there was this big theological debate going on, and you've got the church rallying around one another, being unified, even amidst the disagreements that they had. And then, a little bit later, in that, in that very same chapter, you have this big problem that could have divided the church, and they kept it together. And then you have this little issue that separated two people. So you have unity and division all in the same. It's a glorious chapter. It's a wonderful way to do it and not do it at the same time. Um, but check that out, Acts 15, sometime this afternoon. But I think what we need to recognize is that our collective mission for the glory of God is bigger and far more important than our individual squabbles. If there is disunity, then I believe we need to repent of that where we are participants in the division. We need to make amends. Hear that again. If there is disunity where we've been a part of it, we need to repent. But finally, Jesus prays for our unity with him. Not only does he pray for our unity with one another, but he prays for our unity with him. Look at the last few verses in this chapter, starting uh, verses 24 to 26. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, beloved, by faith we know Jesus and God the Father. By faith we are hoping for things to come. By faith, we come to him. We sacrifice, we suffer and serve for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus' request here is that one day, not only will we see with eyes of faith, but we will see with physical eyes the glory that Jesus has had from the beginning. As we sang earlier, behold our God. Won't that be a glorious day when we will see him face to face? that we will behold his glory and splendor, that we will see the culmination of all that we are hoping and waiting for. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Oh, what a day that will be. So as Jesus prays on the night before he's crucified, he prays for himself, his disciples, and all believers. But where it comes to us, I want to just ask us a couple of questions to be thinking about. How are we doing? Because it seems like the big thing Jesus is praying for for us is unity. So how are we doing in that unity? How are we doing making the love of God visible to the world around us? Or are we quickly finger-pointing and backstabbing? How are we doing persisting in the hope of the eternal life that is to come? Beloved brother and sister in Christ, press on through conflict 
where there is reconciliation needed, seek it out, repent, forgive, be united. The Apostle Paul, as he was writing to the church at Ephesus, he wrote to a church that was fraught with division. You had Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other, and they were living by what seemed like different standards, and they were trying to one-up each other, and there was all this division. And so the Apostle Paul writes this, and I want to close with this exhortation from him. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, hear this, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and 